The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to Season 3 of Students of Mind, the podcast that's all about opening up and normalizing discussions about mental health in ways that anyone can comprehend. In the first two seasons, we sat down with mental health experts and survivors to give you a full circle picture of each topic. In this new season, we will continue to explore the world of mental health through the insights of experts, healers, and individuals with lived experience. From alternative healing modalities to living with multiple illnesses, this season we will cover a wide range of topics with the help of a diverse selection of guests. My name is Jade, and for today's episode, we're continuing the conversation on psychedelic healing with guests Jonathan DePotter and Julia Blum. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Today's first guest is Jonathan DePotter. Jonathan is the founder and CEO of Behold Retreats. Behold Retreats is a company that facilitates plant medicine journeys through a research-backed, expert-guided, multi-week experience. After years of working in management consulting in the corporate world, Jonathan now devotes his time to Behold Retreats and spreading education and awareness of the transformative and healing nature of plant medicine. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Jade. It's, uh, it's lovely to be here and uh, very much looking forward to this conversation. Yes, I am looking forward to it too. Uh, but before we get into the juice of the conversation today, can you talk a little bit about yourself and the work that yeah, you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so a little bit about me. I, I grew up in Hawaii, um, pretty, I would say, you know, lucky to have loving parents and uh, quite spiritual parents as well. And um, despite that, I had um, some kind of suppressed childhood trauma that I didn't know about for most of my life. Uh, And I was an atheist myself. I didn't have really a a spiritual connection personally. 
Um, and so the work that I do now, um, in contrast to many years in strategy and management consulting in the corporate world, uh, is to facilitate plant medicine retreats, psychedelic plant medicine retreats. Um, and I do so uh, naturally through my own journey. Um, this has been such a powerful tool for me uh, to discover more of myself and to help me release uh, some of that childhood trauma uh, and just to get to know myself better uh, and to become a student of my own mind. Great. That goes right into our first question, which is, how did you get into this work uh, with plant medicine? I know you said that you've had your own experiences, so I'm interested to hear what prompted you to start this type of work. You know, for me, um, what I often say is that uh, it was my own journey, my own path, my own discovery of plant medicine and also some of the shortcomings um, of, of what I experienced through the various retreats that I had attended. Um, that led me to understand um, and believe that I could be of greater service in to my friends, to my professional network, those who were, you know, feeling the call to explore this territory, um, to avoid some of the potholes that I had, um, shall we say, rolled through um, over over those experiences and over those retreats, you know. Psychedelics, plant medicine, it's such a powerful tool when it's uh, appropriately used with, you know, the right intentionality, the right preparation, the right facilitators, uh, the right healers um, during such a powerful experience. And then, of course, uh, most importantly, um, guided integration following such an experience so that we can really anchor our lessons back here in uh, back in the real world. And so, um, you know, through these through these experiences, I became uh, increasingly motivated um, to yeah, to guide others. And so, it started by facilitating my own friends on retreat uh, and inviting them on retreats, and then it just kind of naturally evolved into Behold Retreats and and the business that it is today. Yeah. So, can you talk more about Behold Retreats and kind of like the mission behind Behold Retreats and then the types of plant medicines that you guys actually work yeah, sure. with. So what, what, what I came to recognize over time is on a fundamental level, it's not a, you know, it's not a psychedelic experience or even a, a psychedelic retreat that we're looking for. What we're trying to achieve through this work is to raise our vibration um, and to do so in a way that uh, we, we keep an elevated vibration. Now, achieving that with psychedelics takes a lot more than just the experiences themselves. So the mental and emotional work, um, you know, as I mentioned before, preparation and integration before and after, all of these elements kind of uh, need to come together in order to be able to get the most out of the experience and then to, to, to maintain uh, an elevated state. What often happens with these experiences is that, you know, someone flies down to Costa Rica or to Mexico, they, they have a really life affirming, life changing, um, retreat. And then, you know, two or three weeks later, they're back at home, uh, you know, schedules the same job is the same relationships are the same. You still perhaps going out drinking with your buddies on a Friday night, all of a sudden they realize, Oh my God, 
I feel exactly the way it was before. All that clarity, that kind of higher vibrational feeling, that joy for life that I felt at the end of the retreat and maybe the week or two that followed is gone. And so I think it's quite common for people to um, begin to identify with that that state of being that they that they had post retreat and think that perhaps they need another retreat. And and it's not the case. What they actually need is to make the, the everyday lifestyle changes um, that are going to allow them to live in this more elevated state on a, on a more permanent basis. So that's, you know, the motive, that's the meditation, that's the walk uh, with the dog in the morning. That's, you know, all of the, the breath work, perhaps yoga, um, making healthy food choices. These are all of the sorts of things that, that people need to be bringing back um, with them into the real world. And so a lot of what we do are, with Behold Retreats is um, really bringing together that broader set of components such that people uh, get a more significant and sustainable shift without uh, so many uh, plant medicine retreats. So more progress with with less medicine. I want to get into the whole process of preparation, the actual experience, and then integration. But before we do that, can you talk about um, which plant medicines that you guys use and also before before that um just for clarity for the listeners in case that they're not used to this topic um i've like seen on your website and also just as we're talking i hear you use psychedelics and plant medicine um both of those terms so can we kind of give a definition of that so if listeners are a bit confused, they can understand. Yeah, you. I think it's um, it's a it's a good point of clarification to make. There is, I would say, a bit of interchangeable use, and also a lot of uh, broadening of labels in in this space uh, that's taking place at many levels, and different people have their own definitions and their own. Uh, expectations of these words, so it's a bit loaded uh, to be to be perfectly honest. But you know, in in general terms, um, when people use the term psychedelics, they are referring to uh, the the category of um, of either plant medicine or synthetic medicines that are neurogenerative. So they facilitate the growth of new neurons um, that facilitate neuroplasticity. So a greater interconnectivity between regions of the brain, um, some of which may not be um, as used to exchanging information as as we might like. Um, And then I, I would say that they also Uh, facilitate greater access to our subconscious, right? So there's the things that we have in our everyday waking consciousness, and there's the things that that sit below that in the subconscious. And so through amplifying our sensitivity, we are able to surface, process, and release uh, some of those lower-level emotions, the lower-level traumas um, that are being stored in our physical and or energetic body um, so that we are, we are raising our vibration. And, you know, over time, we, we kind of recognize that what we're trying to do with this work is to, um, to heal our minds, you know, improve positivity of, of our thinking. Uh, we're trying to open our hearts uh, and then we're trying to harmonize mind, body, heart, and spirit um, to that to that higher vibration. So that's kind of a bit of a, a definition for psychedelics. Then you have plant medicine, which you know um, obviously is a 
is a much broader category, but often people who are working with psychedelics will use the term plant medicine to refer to plant-based psychedelics. Now, unhelpfully, they are also typically referring to non-plant plant medicines when they do so. So um, I'm going to use the examples of the medicines that we work with. So um, we predominantly work with um, psilocybin, which is magic mushroom, uh, ayahuasca, uh, which is the combination of two plants with the underlying uh, active molecule, which is uh, DMT, dimethyltryptamine. Uh, and then we also work with what is often known as bufo um, or uh, 5-MeO, DMT. So the mushroom is a fungi. Um, ayahuasca is a plant medicine, strictly speaking. Uh, and then um, uh, and then 5-MeO DMT can either come from a plant source, uh, actually an animal source, uh, the Sonoran Desert Toad, or it can also come in synthetic format. And often, you know, myself, for example, I will use the term plant medicine to refer to psilocybin, the mushroom, fungi, ayahuasca, and also 5-MeO-DMT, uh, which, you know, again, strictly speaking, isn't accurate, but it's a, a simplification of terms in order to be able to communicate efficiently. Great. That is so helpful. Even for me, I, I think that was a great way to clarify everything. And so speaking to that, can we start talking about uh, like each step of the retreat process? So the preparation, um, the actual experience and the integration, what does that look like? Yeah, the, the place I often like to start is by observing that you know, psychedelics in of themselves aren't necessarily the answer. Plant medicine isn't necessarily the answer. I think we all probably know people who um, speak very highly of plant medicine, but they're still full of scarcity, negativity, judgment, maybe bad relationships, messy house, you know, all of these things that, um, that we're definitely not aiming for. Um, and so what, what's important is intentionality, preparation, quality facilitation, quality guidance, and integration. So I'll talk you through that process. Um, so I think first and foremost, it's it's helpful for people to get clear on who they are going to be. Um, each and every one of us is perfect as we are in, in the present. I truly believe that. Um, the paradox is that we can also be better. Um, and so it, it invites us into um, accepting ourselves as we are in this moment, rather than saying, oh, I need to be, I need, I need more healing. I need to be in this other place where, you know, I'm going to have the job of my dreams and the relationship of my dreams and, you know, everything's going to be better. You know, that if we're living in that state of being, that's never ending um, because there's always improvements to be had. And so we'll get to the end of our lives and go, oh man, I've just lived for 90 long years wishing that things were different than they are. And that's just, you know, not a very nice way to, to live life. So uh, that being said, um, number one, who, who is your future self? Um, and uh, getting descriptive about who that person is and getting excited about bringing that person from, you know, your, your imagination and out uh, out into the real world. That's kind of step one. Step two is, um, okay, so so why isn't that person here today? What are the mental and emotional blocks in your mind that are perhaps past traumas uh, that are keeping that that version of yourself from, from flourishing out here in, in the real world? And this is where, you know, really coaching and therapy comes into its own because um, the mind is just, you know, as, as you know, um, 
the mind is just an incredibly powerful but also tricky customer. It just has so many deviations through which it can convince itself that it's small uh, or that we're small and and we're not. Each of us is limitless. Each of us is a perfect divine expression of spirit with unique gifts um, to bring out into the world and to share with the world. And, and with that, we will find our success. We will find our abundance, all of those things that um, all of us want uh, and, and can be fundamental to, to the human experience if we allow it. So uh, stepping through that process is, is important. Um, and then, and then third is, um, you know, really some tools and some practices for working with medicine and ceremony. So I'm going to give, um, two, two examples. So for me, my first retreat was very challenging. I, I kept passing out. Um, and if I had some tools and this is going to sound really silly, but if someone had told me to breathe, when I was having uh, challenging times, I would have had, I think, of a very different experience. So I was actually forgetting to breathe. I, the The experience itself was um, so powerful that it was kind of pulling me out of the 3D. Um, and so the breath is a very powerful way to stay connected and stay grounded between uh, this world, the spirit world, and uh, the 3D world. So these sorts of tools to uh, begin to help people see their minds, to prepare for ceremony, um, and also to continue to elevate their consciousness post-retreat um, so that, you know, it's not just experiential um, in its nature. So that's a lot about um, what we do pre-retreat. With ayahuasca in particular, there's also more in terms of uh, dietary requirements. So people have to clean up um, their diet. I always recommend to people that uh, they think about a retreat of this nature on energetic terms. So every decision that we make um, in preparation for such an experience is going to be reciprocated. So if we've got a clean diet, we're taking care of ourselves, we're being as loving as possible, we're you know, reviewing our intentions three or four times a day in the time leading up to the retreat, that's going to make um, uh, a big impact. And so when we do all of these preparatory steps um, ahead of stepping into the work with the medicine, then the medicine or you know, spirit, as we, as we may describe it, can can reciprocate because there's a clear intentionality there's a clear request and so one of the ways that i like to describe this is that okay you're here but you want to be in this other place and so in these ceremonies uh, you will often be shown the things that you need to be willing to let go of or the things that you need to be willing to embody in order to begin to make those um, those steps towards that future self. Um, and so that's, you know, when, when that's done correctly and people are able to um, step into that in a prepared and, and grounded sense, then that's amazing. People get a lot out of the retreat. Now, coming out of such an experience, some people can feel like, let me say, the very fabric of reality has kind of been pulled out from under them. Uh, when when they're on retreat, if they've had a powerful breakthrough, a powerful experience, then you know we we can often lose what I would describe as uh, our psychic anchors. The way that we see reality itself has has changed to a large degree, um, and so that's why it's important to be guided in the integration process. You know, uh, if I take um, uh, my own example, you know, perhaps. Uh, 
the first time I discovered uh, my childhood trauma, my inclination might be to immediately reach out to my parents and to describe to them uh, some of the childhood trauma that I've been through. Now, maybe, right? Um, but a coach or a therapist can really help you integrate that experience into your own being in the first instance. And then from that place of, of being made uh, whole at the level of the individual, then you can begin to think about your next steps. You know, also we have guests, we have clients that, um, you know, they come on one retreat and they're like, I'm selling my business. I'm moving the family. We're going to buy a house in Costa Rica, start a new life. And you're like, that's amazing. I'm so happy for you. You know, you're, you're, you're making big steps in your life. Um, maybe you'd like to speak to a coach for a couple of weeks before you start to make these, you know, huge life changing decisions. Not to say it's not the right thing. You've, you've clearly got yourself a very powerful message, but you know, slowly, slowly, softly, softly is generally the right approach. Yeah, I love that. And I, I love how holistic it sounds. I think um, just using my experience, I uh, the the way the program that I'm a part of for ketamine is very clinical. And I it's been great. But I think part of what I'm missing is that like, guided experience of having some help with integration afterwards and preparation beforehand, because that's kind of what I'm doing on my own now. So it's so great to hear that you guys have this whole process before and after to support your clients with. I think that's a really positive thing. I want to talk about the like retreat experience itself. What What do you think the benefits of healing in that type of space are yeah so i see i see a number of benefits to you know taking taking a week um for for an experience of this nature i think number one just stepping out of our everyday context and meeting a new group of people at a beautiful location that in, in of itself has tremendous value you know i think particularly in the u.s there's a um, habit of trying to do things quickly. Um, and, you know, at a, at a deep level, this work is about slowing down and, and doing the things that are aligned to who and what we are as individuals. And so when people are like, oh yeah, I'm going for, you know, a, a two day retreat, I'm going to drive down three hours and, you know, do two ceremonies and two nights and then drive back. It's like, wow, that's, that's intense. You know, that's, that's not, it's not the way that I would wish to do the work myself, nor would I wish that for friends and, and, um, you know, people, people that I care for, but, you know, some, some people have limitations around, you know, time and, and indeed budget and in, in their ability to, um, take a week for themselves. So, and I think just taking a week for yourself is, is a beautiful and important thing for those who are in a position to do so. I think the second thing is, um, is the number of layers that we are able to peel away over the duration of a week. So, um, you know, if we do say three or four ceremonies over the course of a week, then, then we're just able to 
peel away more of our layers of what we are not. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do uh, with this work. So, you know, if we were to go do one ceremony, you know, an hour and a half away and then come back home for a week and then go do another an hour and a half away, then what tends to happen is like all of the things that are around us that we're not come rushing back between those experiences. And so when we break through a few of those layers, then often there's a greater, I would say, stickiness to the change that, um, that, is, that is facilitated in that way. Um, the, other, the other thing that I would mention would be the healers, the quality of the healers, right? Like a lot of this work happens underground, obviously, um, because, it's, because it's not legal. Um, but that being said, the the quality healers, the people who do this work really well and have dedicated their lives to this work, they often choose to live in locations where this work is permitted so that they don't have to be constantly like, you know, looking over their shoulder going, oh, man, is today going to be the day that um, someone's sitting outside trying to catch me? Uh, helping people, you know, um, and so and so a lot of the yeah, the healers want to be open and transparent about um, the nature of the work that they're doing. So, you know, for, for a retreat, you know, we generally have um, a lot of integrative practices. So whether that's yoga, breath work, um, embodiment practices, um, there's always, you know, healthy vegan meals, um, plenty of time for rest and reflection, journaling, all of those sorts of good things. So it's really, you know, as much as anything, creating um, space and learning opportunities around uh, the plant medicine experiences to to go deep with ourselves. Um, and then over time, we also plan to introduce more, you know, at the moment, I think people are still mostly in a mode of healing, right? They've got shame, guilt, fear, grief, apathy, anger, envy, all these kind of lower level emotions stuck in their being. And so they need to kind of clear that out. As more and more people clear that out, then I see there's also a meaningful and exciting opportunity to just ex do more expansive retreats and, you know, integrate hiking more and integrate more cultural aspects because there's beautiful medicines and beautiful medicines traditions from many places around the world. So um, we will be be launching more experiences of, of broader nature as more people kind of uh, clear out some of the the backlog, if I may describe it as such. Yeah, that sounds really great. I was wondering about like how you chose the healers that work on staff and like if, yeah, like how you found them if you went like to these places like Costa Rica and everything and found them there or how, how what was that process like? Yeah, so there's a there's a rational and a spiritual answer um, to to this question. Mm -hmm. So the rational answer is you're looking for people who've done a lot of this work. Um, you know, there's just no replacement for decades of experience, people who have seen it all, done it all. Um, you know, these can be um, intensive experiences. And so, um, you know, I, I will be transparent in saying that I would say that I, I nearly died on my first retreat, um, not like an ego death, just like a, a normal house variety death. And so, um, you know, I'm grateful that I was very well looked after on the physical level. I wasn't very well looked after on the spiritual level, but that's a, a, a deeper, uh, a deeper conversation perhaps. But, you know, people can go through very extensive challenges um, during these experiences. These are very powerful medicines. Um, and so having people who have that breadth and depth of experience is super important. There's just, there's no replacement for that. 
Um, so we we do a lot, obviously, for for any uh, facilitators or healers that are um, that we're considering kind of working with. Uh, we we really take the time and the energy to understand the philosophy of their work, the history of their work, how much of this work that they've done. Uh, of course, we would um, always sit in ceremony with them um, if we haven't done so already. Usually that's the way in which we've kind of been introduced. We would start with something of that nature, of course, before uh, before partnering. Um, and then from a, from a spiritual perspective, oh, and the, sorry, I, I skipped over, safety. Um, you know, their understanding of safety, safety protocols, all of those sorts of things. I will actually share with you that we had for the first time uh, a guest arrive on one of our retreats that actually wasn't ready to do this work. So they had passed um, the first three levels of screening, which are conversational, um, a, um, a psychiatric, you know, f- f- um, psychological and um, and medical screening. They had also passed, uh, and then they had also passed the the consultation with the psychiatrist. But when they arrived on retreat, um, one of the facilitators could quite quickly see that this person was not ready for an experience um, of of this nature, and so they had actually. Um, shall we say, I'm not going to say fabricated, they had been selective in their uh, responses. And, and, you know, they were very, I would say they were desperate for a retreat, uh, for an experience of this nature, and um, being selective with the truth in order to try to um, make their way into this experience. But once they arrived on retreat, it was like, look, you're, you're really not in a place to be able to do this. And so we had to excuse them um, from, from the retreat. Again, that's for us, that's the first time that that's ever happened. It does happen. We're grateful that we caught it, you know, before the medicine work began as opposed to after. Um, and so again, you're looking for people who can just see this, you know, it's, it's in the eyes, um, and, and in the behavior, if, if a person is erratic and you can see that they're, they're kind of discombobulated and, 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 um, confused, they're not, they're not ready for this work. So um, the, the second aspect is spiritual in nature. So the way that I often describe this is that um, everyone has a, a vibration, kind of as we spoke about before. And what we're looking for in healers is people who are at a high vibration. Um, and so they are, you know, one of the reasons that people seek out spiritual teachers is for this reason. It's not necessarily that they have all of the answers for you. They will perhaps be able to guide you towards finding more of your own answers within you. But there is something that's happening on an energetic level, which is that if you were, if I went and sat with one of our um, very high vibration healers for a week and we didn't even speak, we didn't do any medicine work, we just sat next to one another, my vibration would start to go up quite quickly um, because there's a sort of harmonization of frequencies. You know, in, in physics, when you have two frequencies, a high frequency and a low frequency, the lower frequency begins to harmonize up um, to the higher frequency. And so there's a sort of um, uh, one of the descriptions you hear is uh, the benef- the benediction of the, of the guru. Um, and so there's a sort of energetic exchange that's, uh, that's taking place. Um, and so again, that's part of the reason why, um, why we seek out these experiences, why we want to work with quality healers. And so that kind of energetic calibration is, uh, is a fundamental part of how we, um, how we select our healers. That's really cool. I love talking about like energies and vibrations. It's so interesting. So my last question about the retreats is, 
is there like a person that you would say these retreats are for um yeah like who who are these retreats meant for um you know it's interesting people come into these experiences with such a vast variety of motivations um some people come for you know healing motivation. So it could be depression, could be anxiety, could be, you know, a lot of people use this, um, to help with their addictions. We don't, we don't work with addiction clients ourselves. It's just, it's more intensive, um, work that's required relative to, to what we do. Um, you know, a lot of people also are in what I would describe as, um, uh, a victim, mentality. So what that means is that um, when people are in a mode of pointing to the outside for their problems, um, I, you know, I truly believe that we create 100% of our reality um, through through our inner world. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's that's a difficult pill to swallow or even to consider. Um, and it's not something that I used to believe. I, you know, I used to believe my parents and my boss and my colleagues and, you know, my, my relationship, all of these things on the outside had a, an effect upon my world. And it's, and, it's, and it's simply fundamentally not the case. It's that I'm creating my own reality and those things are um, harmonizing around me or they're not harmonizing around me depending upon who and what I am and the energy that I'm bringing forth into the world each day. Um, and so and so helping people come into this renewed understanding of um, being able to create their own reality um, is certainly a lot of um, uh, clients that, that we work with. You know, not everyone is willing to entertain this possibility. So for people who want to continuously or continue to give all of the power to the outside. We don't take them as clients. Um, again, they can be helped through this work, but they require something more intensive than we can provide. Um, and so for those, you know, those of your um, audience who are listening and considering experiences of this variety, I would really encourage them to spend the time and the energy to connect with a variety of providers to really make sure that number one, they're taking the time and energy to understand you, right? Because each of us is different and each of us is facilitating different medicines in different ways and different places for different types of people. Um, and so just making sure that it's not like uh, just one of those, I'm just going to say retreat centers that it's like, yeah, 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 just, you know, hit, hit book now on our website and come on down. Um, if that's the energy, then, you know, be cautious of that because it just means there's probably going to be quite a broad variety of, um, of people on retreat. And that's, you know, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but people could be, I'm going to say all over the show. Um, so we, you know, for, for our guests, we do a one hour conversational screening, uh, as a starting point, just to, you know, begin the energetic calibration process. And then, um, at the end of that one hour call, um, if there's a felt energetic alignment, then we extend them an invitation to join one of our retreats, but it's, it's not like, oh yeah, the, you know, the, the, um, that they can just book now on our website. It's a, it's a more calibrated process. So I think that's a, that's an important aspect of, um, of, of people finding the right experiences for themselves. Yeah. I, that's, I love that you mentioned that. That's a great tip. Cause I, I think safety is another thing that <laughs> is so important around, uh, psychedelic experiences or ex using plant medicine and, 
I've noticed that through everything you've said, safety has been just the consistent thread through it. Um, so yeah, it just sounds like you're, you really value keeping your clients safe, which is great. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting one because it only takes one person to have a bad experience to really shake you to, to your core. Um, and so it's, it's also a bit unfortunate, you know, like I, as I described before, you have people who are very desperate to heal and, and they're trying to find their ways into these experiences. Um, and to and to have to say no is is hard because they want this so badly. But um, you know, it's from a, this sounds a little bit cold, but from a business risk perspective, there's just such a high reputational um, challenge that comes with facilitating this work. Now, I know there's a lot of organizations that are even much more conservative than we are. Um, and so what they do is they actually, you know, in the clinical trials, if, if you're familiar a little bit, Jade, what they typically do is they accept people into these programs that fit the minimum definition of anxiety, or they fit the minimum definition of depression. So they're not super depressed. They're not like way down there on the suicidal, they're not super anxious, but they are diagnosed with, um, with anxiety they are and so what they're trying to do is they're moving them out of the minimum definition and into a uh into a better place so just with a little move to one direction then they're saying oh this person is no longer clinically depressed this no, this person is no longer clinically anxious now um going a little bit deeper into that the western world doesn't really understand the energetic and the spiritual aspects of this work so they they're feeding um the the trial participants the medicines but they're not necessarily um able to you know like a shaman or a healer would be able to to help them navigate some of the um, energetic dimensions, the new energetic dimensions that become available through this work. And so um, there's there's a lot there in terms of, um, you know, bringing people into deeper containers with healers um, that can predictably help a much broader set of people than is being allowed into these clinical trials. But the um, the understanding of this is still so fragmented. You know, the, the people who do this work regularly and, and the spiritual healers, et cetera, you know, they're all about expanding consciousness and bringing people into very high states of being and seeing the light and the universal love and interconnectivity of all things, all these amazing, incredible, beautiful, mystical experiences. And then here in the Western world, we have all these doctors in white lab coats saying, this can help you cure and, you know, address, you know, anxiety and depression. And, and that's true. And we want everyone to heal, but that's really putting a limitation on the way in which we look at these medicines. Um, and also they're not having as great a result as some of the scientific papers might lead us to believe. And that's because they're overlooking the spiritual component. They're, they're not spiritual people, they're doctors, um, which is not to say that they're not spiritual. It's just that they're not healers. They're not shamans. They're not, um, you know, people of, of that nature. Yeah, so, so interesting. And I just feel like there's still a lot of work to do <laughs> in terms of like, like research around psychedelics. I, it feels like there's a lot of work to do, but hearing uh, practices like yours makes me hopeful that we're going in the right direction. Um, we're, we're about to wrap up. Um, I have one question that I'm asking everyone this season on the show because I really want to put an emphasis on self-care this season because it's mm. so important. Um, so last question before we wrap up, what is one thing you do to maintain your mental wellness? Meditation. 
Mm. Yeah, it's, you know, for me, it's um, such a powerful practice. Uh, there's from the National Science Foundation, they they did some research that showed your typical person has between 12,000 and 60,000 thoughts per day. Um, virtually 100% of those thoughts are egoic thoughts. So that's I, me, my. 95% of those thoughts are repetitive and 85% of those thoughts are negative. So we're thinking all the time only about ourselves, the same things and mostly bad things. And so through taking up meditation, you can begin to um, see the tricks that the mind is playing and begin to make uh, some of the necessary corrections or some of the not necessary, but some, to recognize some of the opportunities that exist. That's such an interesting way to describe meditation. I really like that. I think that could be really helpful for people. Before we end, uh, what are some ways that my audience and I can stay up with you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, check us out and uh, behold-retreats.com or um, we are on Instagram as well at behold underscore retreats. We're not as active on social media as um, as uh, we might like to be. We just uh, we have plenty of clients and guests finding us in other ways. Um, and I prefer to do more more things like this, to be honest, to connect with people like yourself and uh, and your audience is just more fun to have a, a more in-depth conversation and, um, and try to be of service. Hi friends, Jade here. I wanted to pop in because this episode is pretty long and I know it can be a bit overwhelming to consume so much information in one sitting. So I encourage you to take all the time you need to listen to this episode and take this moment with me to take three deep breaths before we continue with the show. First, let's exhale and release all of the breath that we currently have. And let's begin. Breathe in. And breathe out. Breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in. And breathe out. All right, let's get back into the show. Our second guest is Julia Blum. Julia describes herself as an empath, psychonaut, and mental health advocate. After struggling for years with various mental health challenges, she discovered and began her journey with using psychedelics for healing. 
She now uses her platforms to make information about psychedelics more accessible and to debunk the many common misconceptions that exist about psychedelic healing. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, I'm really excited about this conversation. And so before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Julia. I work in the psychedelic space on various fronts. I'm a creator on TikTok and I write a publication called The Journey. And then I also work with organizations, nonprofits, companies, etc. in the space and help them with their strategies around scaling psychedelic medicines. Great. So to get started, I kind of want to have people get to know you and your mental health journey. So can you give us some background on your mental health, like what your diagnoses are and kind of the journey that got you to exploring plant medicine? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. And as you asked that question, what my diagnoses are, I, I realized that the phrasing for me would be were because I don't have any of them anymore. Thanks to psychedelic medicine, which for the longest time I didn't know was possible. Um, but essentially, I think my story is probably one that people have heard before. I had the perfect life on the outside. I was living in New York. I had a great job. I had a great community, friends, everything, you know, should have been fine. It should have been the happiest. And that was not the case. I'd been struggling with my mental health secretly um, for various years. I was living some type of a double life because I didn't speak too much about it due to the stigma and the specific issues that I struggled with were a decade-long eating disorder, most prominently bulimia, but there were also some other eating disorders towards the beginning and towards the end. And then I also had major depressive disorder. I had PMDD, premenstrual dysmorphic disorder, which is kind of like PMS on steroids, but really truly more severe um, that also brought out primarily depression symptoms. And then I had PTSD. Um, both the classical PTSD and complex PTSD, so developmental trauma. So this is a, a whole bunch of different diagnoses, um, I think most of which, you know, I was told I was going to have to learn to live with. And thankfully, I was very stubborn. And I believe that if I found the right tools that it will, would allow me to illuminate the root causes of my problems, that I could overcome them for good, which is what eventually happened, but it was definitely not an easy path. And it took a lot longer than I hoped it would. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to say that like all of these issues are not present in my life anymore, which doesn't mean that my life is always perfect and easy, right? <laughs> but I'm not, um, I'm not in those places of darkness that have accompanied me for the first, you know, two decades of my life, essentially. Wow. So that's that's a lot to have to live with every day. Um, and I'm wondering, like, if you went through, you know, the traditional modalities of healing first before exploring plant medicine and what that looked like for you. 
Yeah, I mean, I I did. I was in therapy for years. I think I cycled through four different therapists over the years. Um, I also saw different psychiatrists. I also saw three or maybe even four different eating disorder coaches for the recovery of my eating disorder. And all of that, like some of it helped more than others, but essentially it would help me sometimes, you know, feel better, but it would never eliminate the root cause of my problem. And then, you know, one of the psychiatrists that I saw, it urged me to um, go on antidepressants, right? Because I was very, you know, suicidal at that point in my life. And for me, medication was always the last resort. And I always told myself, well, I'm going to try other things first. And if then it doesn't work, I'll go and try medication. And that's not to hate on medication. I think there's definitely a place for it as a short-term intervention. But the way it's used right now with most people is that it's a long-term treatment where we put people on medication for the rest of their lives. And that not only often works poorly, but also prevents you from illuminating the root cause because by taking medication, you manage the symptoms, but by manage the symptoms, by managing the symptoms, you also mute them. So you lose the chance to dialogue with your psyche that is clearly trying to tell you something, right? So thankfully I discovered psychedelic medicine before I went to to the medication, I think I would be in a very different place right now if that had unfolded differently. Yeah. And I will just say that I am in the space of having been medicated for years now. And um, like over the past two years, like getting into psychedelics and realizing the healing nature of them. And that's why I want to reiterate again why I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because I definitely feel like it's a topic that some people think we shouldn't even be talking about. So I guess my first question around this is what prompted you to get into exploring psychedelics and plant medicine and what was the first psychedelic that you used? Mm-hmm. So I had a little break in my career where I went to business school, um, which was really fun and left me finally with some spare time after working like really long hours for years. And I read a lot during that time. And one of the books that I randomly read was How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, which I think now in hindsight is probably every second person you ask has come to the topic through that book, right? If not even more. And I read that and I became immediately so fascinated because at that point, I'd already been on a spiritual journey for quite some time. I've been a meditator for years. So I'd always been interested in consciousness. And I'd started practicing yoga and diving more into Buddhist philosophy the year prior. So I found psychedelics to be really like mentally stimulating, the idea of them at least, right? And then I was very risk averse. So I didn't touch anything until I felt that I was ready and for an entire year, I just educated myself on the topic. And then when I did feel ready, the very first experience that I had was LSD and a somewhat recreational setting. I was with a small group of friends um, on vacation in nature and we had rented a house and everyone, you know, took the LSD. And for everyone, it was the first time and everyone had a beautiful day and it was really really a lovely experience. And it wasn't, my first psychedelic experience wasn't the most 
healing psychedelic experience, but it was enough to prove to me that the potential that I hoped they would have, I could see and how I connected with that medicine on that specific day. And yeah, that was the first one. And then a a few mushroom encounters followed. And then pretty quickly I discovered ayahuasca, which was probably the most important plant in in my own healing journey. Can you talk about your ayahuasca experience? Yeah, sure. You're going to have to cut me off because there's a lot to tell. Okay, no, I'm I'm (laughs) open for all of it. (laughs) Essentially, ayahuasca is a medicine I think that a lot of people misunderstand as the most dangerous, like none of these substances are dangerous, but often in people's eyes, ayahuasca is like, oh, wow, you're drinking that, right? They put it in a different category than mushrooms, et cetera. Now that I've, you know, sat quite a bit with that medicine, I can really with full confidence say that it's like the safest medicine there is. And it's definitely, it can be an intense experience, but the rewards you get are unparalleled in my mind. I haven't tried all psychedelics, but I've tried a lot of them. And for me, ayahuasca will always hold a special place in my heart because of the, you know, experiences that it has gifted me. And I woke up one day and I was quite intimidated because everyone, you know, speaks about all the things surrounding ayahuasca that are intriguing, the purging, et cetera, and the visions. And I was quite scared. So I knew like I was going to do it at some point in my life, but I didn't feel the urgency to until I woke up one day and I knew I was ready. And three weeks later, I was at a retreat in Costa Rica. Like I literally just booked that day and I was there and all the fears and worries were just wiped. Like I arrived there and I felt so ready and I had full confidence that that was, you know, where I needed to be. And I did a week long retreat that had four ceremonies embedded in that week. And I think that's where my healing journey really began. After that first retreat, I came back. I didn't connect again with the medicine for an entire year because it took me so long to integrate what I'd learned about myself in that one week. And then later once I had already made a few changes in my life, I returned to the medicine. And I think that was like the second stage of my healing. And because after the first time, I think I bought a little bit into this like miracle cure language of like, okay, like ayahuasca is the last resort. I'm going to do that. And that's hopefully going to like fix everything. And it didn't, like it changed so much for me, but I came back and two months later I relapsed in my eating disorder and some other things came back and I initially thought, oh God, I have failed ayahuasca. If even ayahuasca can't save me, I'm a lost cause. But turned out I just needed more time and patience and more work. And so that was like stage two where I returned to the medicine for like a pretty intense period of a year where I went to quite a few ceremonies and did a lot of really deep work in between the ceremonies to prepare and integrate. And then, you know, after that fifth retreat, all my mental health symptoms were gone and I haven't returned since. I know I will at some point, but it was pretty, you know, it was pretty efficient. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I I think that that's what a lot of people wish for. Um, you talked a little bit about integration, and I think that that's something that I know is talked about a lot in the psychedelic space, but outside of it, people are probably like, what does that mean? So can you talk a little bit about 
what the integration part of a psychedelic experience is and what that looks like specifically for you. Yeah, totally. So what happens during a psychedelic journey is that you experience a change of awareness, like something will be brought into your awareness that previously wasn't, or maybe it was, you know, you were semi-consciously aware, but you didn't realize the impact that like certain things had on you and psychedelics change that. And in addition to that, they give you teachings, right? About yourself, about the world. And then you come out of ceremony and it's up to you then what you do with that, right? Because the psychedelic won't heal you, but the psychedelic can show you the path that you have to walk to heal yourself, but you're still going to have to walk it. And that's what happens after ceremony. And that's arguably way more difficult than any of the work that you do in ceremonies or in journeys, right? So it's this, the practice of how do I show up every day in my life and embody these new awarenesses and these new teachings in a way that sustainably will, you know, alter how I operate in this world. And that was very tricky for me because especially with an eating disorder of such addictive nature, I was bulimic, right? Food I had to confront every single day. It's not like I don't want to compare, you know, but if you have a substance addiction, there's a clearer cut, right? You cut out the substance and then you're done. With food, you have to develop a relationship with it. So the biggest part of my integration was that and learning emotional coping skills, which I didn't have as a result of the eating disorder and some of the other things, right? So the medicines gave me heightened emotional awareness, but it didn't necessarily give me tools to cope with these newly found emotions, right? I still had to figure that out myself. So finally, I could feel way more than I ever had felt. And just to give you an example, like I was, you know, I've lived alone all my life. I've traveled a lot. I've always been alone a lot. And I, you know, as an introvert, I've always appreciated it. But it was only after my first ceremonies that I felt loneliness for the first time in my life at age 27, which like, I just didn't know the emotion. Right. And then what do I do when I feel loneliness? I don't know. Right. Like there are so many default coping mechanisms that then the work becomes to not fall back into those. And that's where integration support is really, really critical. And I think it depends on the case always, but I definitely could not have done my integration on my own. I needed more support. And for me, that looked like different things at different times, right? It was therapy. It was more specialized psychedelic integration coaching. I did some somatic practices. I did a lot of embodiment work myself, meditation retreats, like the full spectrum. There's so much that you can do. And it's very, it's highly individual for everyone based on, you know, what the wounds are that you're healing. But you want to make sure that when you return to real life, you return into a setup that is really supportive of the new version that you're becoming. Otherwise, there are always so many parts in our brain that are just going to fall back into old thinking and habit patterns because that's always going to be easier. And psychedelics doesn't extinguish the ego, right? It's still there and it's still going to do its thing after ceremony. And it's it's up to us to develop a new relationship with those parts of us that are difficult. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm glad that you mentioned it's individual because I, I think even I, in my integration, have an idea that it looks a certain way and then I get really down on myself for it not looking that certain way and I feel like it takes away from the experience. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that it's very individualistic. I want to talk more about I, I guess the maintenance of your mental health um, with things like medications it's like you take them every day and that's what's supposed to maintain your symptoms um, but for you using uh, like psychedelics and plant medicine for healing how are you maintaining and um, staying well even though you're not having these experiences consistently like a mm -hmm. medication, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that question. And you know, it's also evolved over time. If you'd asked me that question a year ago when things were still fresher, I would have had probably a more nuanced answer. Like there were a lot of things that I was doing as I went through this process and came out of it to you know maintain my stability that I had gained. And I was quite, you know, religious about like certain routines that I had. Like writing has always been one of my biggest tools for integration. That's why I started writing, you know, eventually publicly, but also more privately journaling is I think the most underrated <laughs> integration practice. And I, I did like morning pages where you just stream of consciousness, write every single morning, a few pages for so many, you know, months, maybe even years, meditation, yoga, several embodiment practices, community practices where, you know, for example, this one thing that really, really helped me coming out of it was an authentic relating practice called circling, where once a week I would be in community with other people on healing journeys and we would have a very um, authentic exchange. And, you know, authentic relating is like an interpersonal meditation where you meditate on what it's being like what it's like being you in presence of the other people right and I did a lot of things so I feel like my my days were really filled with like things I'm doing for myself for quite a long time and that only shifted over the last few months as I got more and more busy with work and I had less you know time for all of these elaborate practices but I also realized there was less need and that was kind of beautiful because you know my my mental health had always been the number one priority for the last, you know, for, throughout all of my 20s. It was the number one worry at all times, every single day, right? And now I forget about it. And meaning I forget about it is that, you know, I I don't rely on as much routine things as I do anymore to maintain what I have now. I want to caveat that by saying that my lifestyle has changed a lot in the process, right? So I think I'm maybe not doing like certain ritualistic things as much, but I think the way that I show up in the world has changed so much that that alone gives me a lot of, you know, energy for, for my mental well-being. And I think, you know, above all, my biggest tool for maintenance is my commitment to presence, and that shows up in different ways. The number one way is probably that I stopped drinking alcohol, right? Which has had a huge positive 
benefit on various areas of my life, right? And I'm spending my time quite differently, right? I socialize differently. I spend way more time in nature and one-on-ones versus like bigger groups, like things that would used to drain me a lot. They're not as present in my life anymore because I've really created a life that feels more aligned with who I am and how I, you know, expand um, my energy. So life feels easier right now, but not because it's become easier, but because I've made the changes that make it easier to live as me, right? I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, it's, it's a good question for sure. And I'm sure things will come up in the future where I'm going to go through phases where I will rely on more deliberate tools. And like right now, really all I do is like my daily meditation and a few times a week, my yoga practice and daily walks and writing. Like these are the core pillars I would say to my mental health. Like it's much less elaborate than it used to be, but I could it's, it makes me happy to reflect on the fact that I can do these things and it can be enough. I don't need to make my mental health a full-time project anymore, right? It's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so beautiful. Like I just personally myself and I just know people who are in that period of our job is working on our mental health right now. Um, and so, yeah, hearing you say that just honestly gives me so much hope. Um, I want to go back into psychedelics and talk a little bit about recreational versus uh, like medicinal or using them for healing purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I've also seen you post a little bit about this on your TikTok. And I just want to ask you about like, how has that been to Um, start to explore psychedelics for recreational use as well? Yeah, you know, it's a very new topic. I Other than, you know, that inaugural LSD trip, which was recreational in its essence, it's always been healing for me exclusively. And I was quite religious about it. And I almost, I really did not feel compelled to use them socially because I... I held them on such a high pedestal, which I still do, aside from how I use them. But for me, it was a matter of like paying respects, right? And does it, do I do the mushrooms justice by just taking them on a random day at a random festival or whatnot, right? I felt I have such deep awe and reverence for these medicines that I wanted to have encounters with them that would show that and honor that. And that was like my prevailing you know, mindset for many years. And now that, you know, my mental health has really evolved to a place where I don't need to do them to heal because I'm I'm sure I'm not like, no one's ever fully healed. I always have like little topics, but I don't have mental health symptoms that make my life hard anymore. Right. So that means that for me, it put me into this new stage of exploring psychedelics from a more recreational lens. And I've really learned throughout that process that psychedelics are not just for healing. They're, you know, I wanting to heal is the most beautiful intention for them, but there are other intentions that are equally valid, I think. And some of them are, you know, to experience joy, awe, wonder, to have fun, right? It can be simple things to connect with your friend, your partner, or a group that you're doing it with, right? 
And obviously, those are different medicine experiences because the dose will be different and quite lower, right? Because like the traditional psychedelic journey that I think of is best done alone or in like a traditional group ceremony setting because it's you and the medicine and the two of you have a dialogue and there's not not really space for a lot of other people to intervene other than the people who are holding the space for you to have that experience, right? But recreational use for me is beautiful because if you take smaller amounts, it can put you into those night. I also like using this language because it's so new agey, but these vibrational frequencies of openness and love and expansiveness and connectedness together with other people or even alone. And you get to experience the world just a little bit different, right? And sometimes that's all we need as a reminder of the beauty of nature, of ourselves, of our connections is to just, you know, wipe our glasses clean. And I feel like that's what recreational use has given me. And I really have these like beautiful days with people I hold dearly. And I'm just reminded how beautiful life is and that the universe really does take care of us. And, you know, I don't know why I judged it so much. It's honestly... I mean, specific. not every psychedelic is meant to use recreationally, right? You cannot have a recreational ayahuasca ceremony. That's not with that medicine. That doesn't work. But there are others like LSD mushrooms where it works pretty well, right? And I think it's really, you know, given me a lot, especially because I don't drink. And then I contrast that experience to an experience where I would, someone else would drink in the same setting. And I just feel like it's, so much more rewarding to have like a mini psychedelic trip than to drink. And I don't see why I would ever do the, you know, drinking again, but I can totally see psychedelics being a part of my life in, in that form for, for the, you know, foreseeable future, maybe not forever, probably not forever. And you shouldn't overdo it. You should still need to make sure you maintain that reverence of the substances. Right. But I think you're not doing any harm by exploring these more recreational uses. Yeah, and you you mentioned judging a little bit, and I want to get into some misconceptions about psychedelics because we know that there's still a lot of taboo (laughs) around the topic. So can you talk about some of the most common misconceptions you come across when it comes to psychedelics? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's... That's like half of my TikTok life is just, you know, (laughs) making things right in people's minds. And that's the reason that I started it, right? It was to educate. And I think the more that I'm confronted with these misconceptions, the more I'm validated in the work that I'm doing because I recognize how important it is, right? I think that the number one or one of the number ones is this is just glamorized drug use, right? And I think what's underneath that um, is the assumption that all drugs are created equal and that all drugs are bad. And what people forget is that medicine and medications are drugs too, right? We just don't often call them that way. We call it medication, right? But I think we really have to untether ourselves from this federal drug schedule that regulates the legality of substances, where in the schedule one, we are including all of the different substances that policymakers, you know, 
criminalized decades and decades and decades ago based on, you know, political motivations and not based on safety, medicinal benefits, et cetera, right? So I think the number one thing that I try to educate people on is the nuance between different substances, right? I think another big, big misconception is that psychedelics are dangerous and that most often comes through in people fearing the bad trip. And I think the bad trip is the biggest misconception probably of them all. I don't think bad trips exist. And that's probably the statement that I get the most pushback from uh, for on, on TikTok because people will tell me, that's not true. You just never had a bad trip. Like I had a bad trip. I, you know, X, Y, Z. And I think like what I really would love for people to understand is the the reframe from like bad trip to heart trip. Like I'm not saying that psychedelics cannot produce challenging experiences. They certainly do. And I think it's it's more relevant to understand that challenging experiences happen for a reason and you can find meaning in them. And when you have the support and tools to navigate them, then you will find that actually those are the experiences that can provide the most, you know, therapeutic benefit. But there need to be certain, you know, things in place in order to get that. So if you're at a festival and you're taking a bunch of mushrooms and some trauma comes up that you didn't know was there and you're acting out and you don't want to think about it. So you're resisting it. Psychedelics are very stubborn. They're going to make it louder and louder until it's like unbearable. And then you freak out. Then that's a question of setting, right? If you had had the same experience in a one-on-one setting with a psychedelic mushroom guide and this memory would come back and you would have someone to talk through the experience, you would be able to navigate it very differently. And it starts even before the setting. It starts by having the awareness that whatever comes up is in service of your own well-being, whether that's something beautiful or something difficult, right? And I think that's something that people often forget. And I always have to caveat because there are some people where there is a risk for more permanent damage from psychedelics, but that's a very small minority. That's people that have schizophrenia in themselves or in their family or any type of psychosis in a first-degree family member or themselves, Right. But for most people, this idea that you take the psychedelic and it's going to make you permanently crazy, like the risk is so minuscule and there's research and research and research, yet people still believe that. People still believe this, you know, bullshit propaganda from the 80s, 70s, 80s and the war on drug essentially that, you know, LSD is going to fry your brain and whatnot. And I mean, these were political campaigns that had millions of dollars behind them to scare the public and clearly they worked and no one right now is campaigning for the opposite. No one's running around. I mean, there are some advocacy groups, but like who's educating the public on psychedelics? No one really, right? The researchers don't have time to do that. Companies don't really have the incentive to do it very selectively. And policymakers certainly aren't educated themselves to do that and don't have any incentives to so I think that's another another big one is, you know, the bad trip and the danger of these substances. And maybe the last one that I'll mention, because I think that's also a super important one, is this notion that psychedelics are miracle cures. And I think that's very prominently used by a lot of, you know, the psychedelic retreats or clinics that are popping up. I see it on my own, you know, social media all the time. Like, 
I received my miracle. I had 10 years of therapy and one night. And, you know, I would talk about my own experiences in that way, but you have to be careful how it's received by people because some people will read this and believe, you know, oh, that's the magic pill that I've been waiting for that's going to solve all my problems. And that's dangerous because if you don't manage expectations accurately, it can make you more miserable. Like after my first retreat, and I went to one of those retreats where they literally have like a number on their website, 97% of visitors say that they received their miracle in their week here, right? So I was expecting my miracle, right? And I did receive what I perceived to be a miracle, but I left and I returned home and I relapsed shortly after in, in my eating disorder. And I thought that I had failed the medicine and that I was even too broken for ayahuasca, right? And that, you know, made me really unwell. And I think if I had known before that that's just a natural progression of the healing path, that, you know, sometimes it's not one retreat and done, um, that it requires more work. That's, you know, where integration comes in again then I think it would have been like maybe as much of a smoother, you know, ride. But I really want people to understand that these modalities have immense, immense potential, more potential than anything else that I know in in the mental health space. But they're not cure-alls, right? And you have we have to figure out how to integrate them into our lives and our you know, psychiatric care in a way that leverages that potential while also providing enough support structure so that we can make really make use of it, right? And not let it go to waste. Yeah, I'm, I, I love that you mentioned that because it is like once the psychedelic is in the picture, it's like you have to bring the work. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I agree that I, like even in my experience, I was expecting to feel more healed after my psychedelic experiences. And um, I think even that experience of like the disappointment and having to sit with the disappointment and, and realize what that medicine is really f for was healing in and of itself, for me at least. Yeah, yeah totally. And I think our minds are primed that way because we're grown up in this Western mentality to health where you have an issue and then you get the quick fix. Like you have depression, this is the medication you take every day and within a few weeks, your depression will be gone, right? Or even more extreme in other areas of, of healthcare. And these, these modalities work very differently, right? These wisdom traditions, they're not quick fixes. They are the opposite of a quick fix. They are opening up the deepest core wounds that are within you that all parts of your personality fiercely protect so you don't get too close to them. And then you crawl your way out of it. And that crawling can take months, years, sometimes like for me, it certainly took years, right? But if you keep doing the work and keep showing up in that way, and you're committed to that journey, you're going to reap the rewards essentially and the rewards are going to completely outweigh anything else that you've had before because what I think psychedelic healing really can gift you that a lot of other mental health care treatments can't is freedom. Like most mental health care treatments don't make us free. They just 
they numb us or they they capture us more in our illnesses and they mute it, but psychedelic healing can help people find freedom again from the ailments that, you know, have burdened them. And I think that's worth the the tough climb, right? For sure, for sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your TikTok and kind of just what prompted you to share your experiences on social media and like what made you choose TikTok specifically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think I started sharing through my writing. I started on a blogging platform called Medium. Now it's two, maybe even three years ago. And I use it as a way to, you know, publicly practice my writing. And then later, I I remember I wrote one article about ayahuasca and it went viral. And I realized, oh, people really want to know about this. And I continued writing about ayahuasca and it really helped me process my ceremonies through writing. And it really helped me with the meaning making. And then, you know, earlier this year, I realized that I wanted to make more resources accessible to people for psychedelic education because as I mentioned I I saw really a gap in how we educate ourselves about these modalities in an unbiased way that is both scientific and spiritual right and it's not overly clinical it's not overly woo-woo it like it takes both into account and I didn't really see a lot of that and I decided I was going to start this weekly newsletter and I did all that. And then I read somewhere that TikTok now has more traffic than Google. So I realized, okay, if you want people to see your work, then you've got to be on TikTok. And that's when I like committed to TikTok. And I know for a few days, I just became very obsessed with like how the algorithm works. And I really read about everything and watched a bunch of videos. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to give it 30 days and not expect anything before, but do it at least 30 days. And I was like very consistent. And, you know, in the first 30 days, I already had millions of views and it really confirmed to me the potential of the platform and the relevance of my message that I wanted to carry out into the world. But, you know, underneath all of this, is just this craving that I have for more people to know about this. I think there's quite a few people or an increasing amount of people that know about it, right? But I still think of it as the psychedelic bubble because we're still such a minority, right? And I want the random mom of four who struggles with depression all her life and lives like in a small town in the middle of the country who doesn't have access to like psychedelics or clinics or anything I or even retreats abroad or like spiritual communities. I want her to see about it on TikTok because I want her to start questioning how she's been telling her story to herself based on what doctors, et cetera, tell her. Because that's the problem. A lot of people get their education from their doctors. And I'm not saying doctors are wrong. Obviously, they have like decades of education and experience to validate their practices. But they're trained in a very specific way to view mental health. And for some people that works, but, you know, quite frankly, for most people, it doesn't. Like, with depression specifically, we can see how small the shares of people that respond well to the current treatments that we have, right? And then I think about that woman that sits there and she thinks 
her brain chemistry is just flawed and it's always going to be that way and that she's always going to be depressed and that the only thing she can do is, you know, endure and take these medicines every day, these medications. And that just like breaks my heart because I want people to have access to those information so that they can inform themselves and make choices. I'm not saying everyone should do psychedelic healing for sure. It's not for everyone. Not everyone needs to do it, but I want everyone to at least have the choice to decide how they view and tackle their mental health. And I feel like that's being taken away in the current system for most people. That is so beautiful. And honestly, like part of my mission as well, just to make all of this stuff, all of this information more accessible, like even going to college, like I went to school and studied psychology and even the barriers there, like all the things that I learned in school, all of the articles that I got access to because I was affiliated with the school that people who aren't affiliated with the school don't have access to is ridiculous. And yeah, I just absolutely love that you're making this information accessible, both in like access and in like understanding it too, because I feel like you speak in a way that a lot of people can understand and that's really helpful as well thank you so much yeah this i feel like that was a great way to wrap this conversation up i have one more question um Mm -hmm. this is like my signature question for this season because i really want to emphasize to my audience the importance of self-care this season so what is one thing um that you do to maintain mental wellness I think it's what I alluded to earlier, yeah. this commitment to presence and maybe to be more clear about what that means in my day-to-day is learning to hold the full range of my emotional experience every day. And that continues to be a learning process, right? Like I don't think I'm ever going to be done learning to do that, but accepting anything that comes up for what it is and learning to hold that part of me that is showing, you know, difficult emotions or whatever it may be, learning to hold that with kindness and compassion and learning to hold the polarities that come with that. Like there is a part of me that feels unworthy right now. And there is a part of me that knows I'm always worthy and both can exist at the same time. I think that's what I just remind myself every single day. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, I think this is going to be a really amazing conversation for people to hear. It's going to be tied in with another conversation with another psychedelic expert. So thank you so much for coming on here and being so open and honest and vulnerable. I really appreciate it. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation and I love that the work, the work that you're doing, it's so, so important. So thank you also on my end on being out there and educating people. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. I want to give a special thank you to my guests, Jonathan and Julia, for being on the show today. They were both really rich conversations, and I'm so excited to share them with you all. To follow or get in touch with today's guests, all of their info will be in the description of this episode. If you have a moment, please leave a rating and review for the podcast. This helps me know if you are enjoying the episodes and gets each episode into more ears. 
Don't forget to join our community, Students of Mind Chats, on Facebook. If you want to see more from the Students of Mind team, all of our links are in the description of the episode as well. Thank you again for listening. I hope you learned something new or resonated with something you heard today, and I will see you next episode. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.